My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people make friends. I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. What do the buyers truly fear? A dangerous world that seems like it could blow apart at any moment or an uptick in the yield on the 10-year treasury? Oddly, I think it's strictly the latter. When long-term interest rates shot higher today, stocks plunged, and when rates went lower, stocks rebounded. Hey, in the end, the Dow finished off 191 points. That's a beat decline, 0.17%. But the Nasdaq advanced 0.27%. People can easily understand the problem with geopolitical turmoil. You have the Israeli Defense Forces possibly invading Gaza. I mean, China seems ready at all times, frankly, to blockade Taiwan. Ukraine's offense has stalled. Iran's orchestrating evil unopposed. The budget deficit's out of control. We don't even have a Speaker of the House, for God's sake. On the other hand, if I told you why bond yields pulled back from their highs today, you actually might laugh. There was a guy, billionaire, of course, Bill Ackman. He tweeted that he covered his short sale of bonds at current long-term rates because there is, and I quote, too much risk in the world to remain short bonds. And I quote again, the economy is slowing faster than recent data suggests. End quote. Yep, it was a tweet. A tweet that moved the multi-trillion dollar bond market. Things are upside down, people. Given that tons of investors buy stocks whenever they see rates go down, we get a reprieve from this morning's selling, although it did reverse again in the late afternoon pullback. But think about the absurdity of all this. Interest rates have been going up because there's a lack of demand for U.S. Treasuries for sale. The market's saturated with them because bond sales are how the federal government borrows for, uh, money. And Uncle Sam, as we know, is borrowing like crazy. So it's supply overwhelming demand. The short position in the 10-year Treasury, the amount of money being bet against Treasuries, is at a record high. And that's largely, again, because short sellers think, hey, how do you miss? There's so much supply. Bill Ackman, the man whose tweet triggered today's temporary bounce, actually dealt with substance. When there's too much risk, you buy Treasuries as a traditional flight to quality. So you could get smoked if you're shorting bonds when something really bad happens and the fight to quality trade overwhelms the supply glut. It can do that. As for the economy growing more slowly than we think, I don't really see evidence of that. We had strong retail sales last week. We have a lot of robust consumer behavior when it comes to travel and leisure. More on that later in the show. We have the Fed saying short rates need to stay higher for longer. Why? Because the data shows no meaningful slowdown. But again, the fear of being caught short in treasuries makes sense. Because if we do get some weaker data somewhere, anywhere, then there will be bond buyers surfacing galore. So let's put it all together so you can reflect on the insanity. Interest rates have been soaring thanks to a surfeit of bonds. Yet a short seller of bonds worries that could, that could change if we get a more explosive war in the Middle East or weaker economic numbers here in America. So he's closing out his short position to play it safe. I'm going to lose money on it. He's made a lot of money. Yet because the stocks are linked to bonds, the market actually rallies on Bill Ackman's speculation that the economy's weak and war's in the air. The travel stocks rebounded like crazy midday, not typical wartime winners. If Ackman's right, these stocks should be going down. When the economy's weak, if you thi- or, or if you think it's going to get weak, you're supposed to bet against the kind of stocks that rallied today. The huge runs in Airbnb, Carnival, the casino stocks, meta platforms for advertising, mega caps rebounded. They should all be repealed in that scenario, and they very well might be. You can't have a rally based on travel and leisure if the economy really is about to show its true tattered colors, the rot underneath. 
That's especially true, of course, about the breakout. These stocks would be the ones to bet against. And tech, which was so strong, those are especially perilous to go long because they're about to report. But they're moving up again, and that's because there's a lack of sell volume. What's the real truth here? Okay, we have two chords in this market. There's a major chord, and that is that interest rates are going higher, and then there's a minor chord, rates pulling back from going higher. I think the major court is still strictly in control for ages. I've been warning you that the 30-year Treasury is headed down in price and up in yield. I don't think that trend will stop until the 30-year exceeds the rate of short-term paper. And I see short-term yields going to 5.75. Fed tightens one more time. And that's why I see the 30-year going from 5% to 6%. Not the end of the world, but that's the direction. So when we get a reprieve like we saw today, with long rates actually going down a bit, that's the minor court. You can tell because, let's say, a, a proxy for bonds, the utility stocks, well, they fell hard today. You'd expect them to go up when bond yields are really going down or instead of artificially going down. The youths went down, though, which says Wall Street's not taking the bond action seriously. Why? Because today is a minor core day, people. It may be aided by a pullback in oil prices. The price of crude going higher makes interest rates go higher. The price of crude going lower sends rates lower. But if war truly breaks out and oil rebounds again, then once again, the major core takes over and rates go higher. I consider today simply a respite, a needed respite caused by Bill Ackman and aided by the pullback in oil. Will Ackman tweet again tomorrow, Bulls? I don't think that would work. In my view, the trend has brought rates to the highest level since 2006, which you hear about constantly, will continue unabated until, well, those rates are much higher. Usually long rates are above short rates, and I don't see this action stopping until we get the, get there. I mean, that's totally rational expectation. I'm not saying anything shocking, yet it comes off as shocking. Somehow, every time long rates jump, we get top callers coming out of the woodwork saying, whoa, this is the end. Me, I believe long rates are peaking when they finally exceed short rates, not before, as I've been saying, actually just to poke a little fun. Rates will keep going higher until they stop going higher. So could the action stocks be wrong? Uh, that NASDAQ move? What do we do with the recovery in those names, the mega caps, which are heavily dependent on rates going lower? Look, in truth, there is nothing real about any of this. It's all back and forth nonsense that people focus on because it's easy to make big picture bets, bet, uh, pitting treasuries against a basket of stocks. And it's really easy for people to comment on who haven't done any homework on stocks to begin with. Unless you trade S&P 500 futures for a living, though, this is all meaningless. What should matter to you is how individual companies are doing it. Today, we had nothing that smacks of actual fact about what stocks are going to do. When we get earnings, as we do later this week, oh boy, then we'll have some reason to break the moronic bond-to-stock linkage that frankly has plagued us for many, many months. Here's what you should be thinking about. Did Bill Ackman move your stocks up with his heartfelt tweet? If yes, then be prepared for the minor chord to quiet down as the major chord of higher interest rates with tensions in the Middle East becomes dominant again. Can your companies do well in that environment? If they report weak numbers, their stocks will go lower, regardless of what anyone treats. If they give you a bad forecast, the stocks will go lower because the major chord is destructive to most of the stock market. Only better than expected earnings and a higher than anticipated future forecast will keep your stocks from falling. What can I say? This is not a very good risk reward. You have to hope that every billionaire tweets the same thing every day while you get great numbers and fantastic forecasts. Good luck. Bottom line, the gauntlet is very challenging. It requires either incredible conviction or a very oversold market or both to make it worthwhile to start buying. That could happen. I just don't think we're there yet, which is why I recommend something that's quite prosaic, if not just outright boring. 
perfect moment to sit on your hands. Trey in Texas. Trey. Jim, I work on Wall Street. Good for you. All my life I've wanted to say those words, and as of this morning, I own a small hot dog stand a block from the exchange. Jim, I'm slinging jumbo all beef Monday through Friday for a buck forty-nine. Does Costco stand a chance? No. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because see, unlike you, they give free samples. Now we got a new CEO coming at Costco. I understand he's every bit as good as the old. That's hard because I like Craig so much. But I think Costco, along with Walmart, are the two retailers you want to own in the, in the uh, broad line. And TJX, now we own Costco, we own TJX for the Travel Trust. Are the t- uh, t- TJX could also be owned. But Costco is number one. And I am proud to be both a Costco stock owner for my Travel Trust and a member. Okay? And I'm thinking about moving up to Black Card. Just saying it. Putting it out there. Let's go to Donald in Ohio, please. Donald. Thanks, Jim. The, yes, this is uh, Redwood from Ohio. How you doing? AMC improved on their viability, sustainability, especially since they got into the sold-out concert business with Beyonce and Taylor Swift. Well, I'll tell you, um, can I just say I've seen enough this Taylor Swift to last a lifetime? I mean, they should put it more on number four. He's my guy in fantasy. That's the guy. I don't care about her. I can't do anything better. I can't put her in my lineup. I do feel very strongly that AMC is a big sale here, and you should sell it. I want to go clear across to my daughter's favorite. Let's go to Brian in Oregon. Brian. Mr. Kramer, club member and fourth-time caller. Welcome back from vacation. And th- oh, thank you, man. I went to Italy with my wife and a lot of friends. It was just a dynamite time. What's going on? Well, I didn't get the end, but I figured I got lost in the news. Hey, with the GLP-1 uh, news, it seems like anything you eat is going down. You previously described this company as a tech company that makes pizzas. Deutsche Bank recently started coverage. The Q3 print beat on earnings but missed on revenue. Down 12% from the recent highs and a dividend of 1.4. What do you think about Domino's? I'm a believer in Russell Wiener. I'm a believer in what he's doing with the delivery systems. And let me tell you something else. He is an operator, and that's what they've needed. I think this situation of Domino's has got about, I don't know, like maybe 20 down and maybe 50 up. I'll take that risk award in this crummy market any day. Sal in Florida. Sal. Jim, Sal. I want you to know you have the best show on television today. Really? So helpful, so educational. The young generation, Jim, you're doing a blessing to them. Ah, uh, you're very kind. I met a guy in Italy. Christian, he loves the show. In Italy. Can you believe it? He's in the vineyard business. That's a good business, believe me. I'm sorry. Had to say it. Well, well Jim, I wanted to ask you about a firm. Last quarter, they had a great quarter. I see the stock run from $12 up to 25 Now it's tailed back to about 18 and change. Is it a good time now, Jim, to add to my position? Well, look, I, I, let me say two things. One is that I think uh, uh, Max is terrific, all right? Uh, it, it, but here's the problem. I don't like banks. And uh, in the end, it is a bank. And it just doesn't matter. I mean, Levchin's good. It doesn't matter. Moynihan's good. Hey, yeah, that fellow Diamond is good. Hey, let's, let's he call me and tell me he's not. But it doesn't matter. It's a bank. And banks just don't, uh, they're not the place to be. All right, listen to me. I don't think we're oversold enough that we can start buying with minus four in the oscillator. It's getting there. That's why I recommend this. is just such a great time to sit on your hands. I'm going to have to sit on one of my watches. Unlikely. 
on Mad Money tonight. We love earnings season around here, but mainly because I like to stay up all night and read annuals and quarterly reports and conference calls. But they also give us an opportunity to interpret data that may otherwise be difficult to get. That's data like consumer spending. So I'm sharing what I've deduced from a host of reports and how it could impact your investing pieces. And it was a tale of two quarters. It was Netflix versus Tesla. And I'm digging into this future reaction and what it means for you. And Snap-on is caught in the crosshairs of higher rates and auto workers strike. What would that make you think about this company? I got to tell you, you haven't seen nothing yet to see the CEO in living color. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Coming into this earnings season, there have been a lot of concern, trepidation even, about the state of the consumer. For the better part of three years, consumer spending has been on fire. One reason why we've got such a bad inflation problem. But in recent months, there's been a growing consensus that the consumer's about to run out of steam. From lingering inflation to much higher interest rates, geopolitical chaos. Hey, how about the resumption of student loan payments? We were told people were really feeling the pinch. Then you see something like last Tuesday's September retail sales report, which came in red hot, up 3.8% year over year. And that whole narrative gets called into question. This was the third straight month of much higher than expected retail sales. These macro numbers just don't jive with the endless doomsday predictions we're constantly subjected to. So how is the consumer really doing? We did some work on this. Fortunately, we are in the middle of earnings season, which means we can hear from all the biggest consumer-focused companies get a better read on the situation. Short answer? It's complicated. Long answer. Let me walk you through what we've heard from the companies with the finger on the pulse of the consumer. Last Friday, oh boy, this is the best one, Mark Express. They reported a strong set of results, but the stock still got clubbed because volume growth decelerated. Management didn't raise their full year forecast. However, Mark Express had nothing but positive things to say about U.S. consumer spending. CEO Steve Squarey, he noted that spending by U.S. consumer card members was up 9% year over year. Get this, travel and entertainment robust, so, so robust is up 13%. Squarey particularly called out the strength in restaurant spending, which is one of the fastest growing travel and entertainment categories. Oh, and if you were worried about those pesky student loan payments starting up again, Squarey pointed out that spending by millennial and Gen Z consumers was up a staggering 18%. Some of that's likely because the market Express has done such a terrific job of winning over young people. At the end of the day, Amex reported good numbers, but its stock tumbled instantly because Wall Street's convinced that this business is about to crash headfirst into a retaining wall. And hey, that's, look, it's certainly a possibility, but we haven't seen any evidence yet. From a big picture perspective, though, market Express really doesn't seem concerned about the health of the consumer. You know what? Maybe that's why upon further review in today's session, the stock actually rallied $3. See? Complicated is right. Now, before we got the Amex quarter, we heard from all the big nationwide banks. And while some of the largest credit card issuers out there in particular were kind of wishy-washy, I always like to follow what Bank of America says every quarter because they have a terrific cross-section of customers and can give us a better read on a wider range of consumers, whereas American Express generally does indeed focus on higher-end clientele. And what Bank of America had to say was definitely worth listening to. They see consumer spending growth petering out. Uh, 
but still on a 4% year-over-year level in the third quarter. But they frame, they frame this as kind of a return to normalcy because 4% consumer spending is what you'd expect from a typical year from the, uh, before the pandemic. Of course, CEO Brian Moynihan explains that a big slowdown up from 10% in 2022 and earlier this year. But he says these numbers are more consistent with the low growth, low inflation economy, which is exactly what the Federal Reserve wants to see. In other words, normalcy. Beyond the financials, most of the consumer commentary has gotten so far been pretty industry-wide specific. For example, we've heard from some of the airlines. And when you piece them all together, it's clear that consumers demand very strong when we're talking rich people, business travelers, and people going overseas. But there's been some softening in pricing on the low-end domestic side. But that seems to be mostly because the airlines have brought on new capacity. The real problem for these guys has little to do with consumer demand and everything to do with higher costs. Yeah, fuel. Hey, by the way, we uh, heard similar commentary from Carnival when it reported in late September. The company noted that bookings for 2024 are off to a great start. CEO, uh, Carnival CEO Josh Weinstein acknowledged the widespread concerns about the consumer, but he said he just hasn't seen any weakness in his company's bookings. Pretty telling. Listen to this. Quote, we already have less inventory remaining for sale at the, at the same time last year, despite 5% more capacity in sailing with occupancy at historical levels. Our book position is as far out as we've ever seen it. End quote. That is a statement. Weinstein's adamant that people are still happily spending their money on experiences. That's that long on money, short on time thesis I've introduced you to. It appears to be holding up just fine when we're talking cruises. The group of stocks did manage to rally today and was at one point a big, but again, weekend into the close. Complicated. What else? When American Express talked about the strength in restaurants, it made me revisit what we heard from Darden the parent of Olive Grove and some other concepts when it reported late September. At the same time, Darden CEO Ricardo Cardenas said that consumers were resilient, but also, and I'm quoting here, a bit more selective, end quote. Unusually, he called out higher-end consumers as place where Darden was seeing softness. I'm honestly not sure what to make of that. We've heard from so many different companies about this, although Cardenas suggested it could be related to the increase in international travel. When rich people go on vacation, Olive Garden probably isn't the preferred destination other than mine and my daughter's. Procter & Gamble used that same word, resilient, to describe the state of the U.S. consumer when it reported last week. Procter CFO Andre Shulton explained how their strong portfolio of brands has allowed them to bring value to customers across multiple pricing tiers. Long story short, the consumer is stable and Procter is taking share. That was, by the way, a fantastic quarter, but just so you know, Travel Trust does own it. You can call me biased, but I loved it. Of course, other areas are doing much worse, especially industries that are heavily dependent on financing. CarMax, the used car giant, who is such a good company, painted a grim picture reported in late September. And no wonder fewer people want to buy used cars when the cost of an auto loan is going through the roof. Very similar to what we heard from Elon Musk last week. More on that later. When you put all this together, you start to get a better idea of the state of the consumer, and you get from the macro numbers alone, which I don't like because they tell you very little. In reality, that red-hot consumer spending figure for September, I'm calling it misleading. But so are the endless doomsday predictions about how the consumer's totally tapped out. When I see, after pouring over all these comments from corporate executives, a consumer spending environment, that's not great, not bad, with some categories doing much better than others. People are still spending on cruises, and they're still going out to dinner, at least if they got American Express. But anything depends on financing, like the autos is in rough shape. Well-run companies with terrific superior brands like Procter & Gamble are doing just fine. Meanwhile, some of Darden Richer clientele getting a little more choosy with Amex younger customers continuing to spend like mad. Not what you'd expect. Bottom line, 
So far this earnings season, even though the consumer's not doing great, things have been much less catastrophic than many of the experts have let, would have led you to believe if you listen to them. Something to keep watching as we head into the all-important holiday season. And always remember, no one should ever underestimate the power of the U.S. consumer long-term to shop much more than anyone expects. Mad Money is back into the break. Coming up. Two mega-popular mega-cap stocks reported and got two very different reactions from the street. Tesla, Netflix, and Kramer, next. I take a week off. The stock market gets crushed by skyrocketing treasury yields. Now that we're back, we need to catch up on some huge stories from last week. Take last Wednesday when both Netflix and Tesla, two of the most highly visible companies out there, reported after the close. And these quarters were very, very different. Netflix came out of its earnings report looking like a million bucks. Stock surging 16% in response the next day. Tesla, on the other hand, had already pulled back earlier in the week. Then it tumbled 9% in response to the quarter before getting hit again on Friday. Tesla may be one of the Magnificent Seven, but you got to remember that four of them don't survive until the end of the movie. Hey, you know what? This stock's now feeling a little more like James Coburn than Steve McQueen. So why is it that Netflix were while Tesla broke down? I think we got to really look at these two because they're very much the... I said the zeitgeist of the stock market. Netflix had pulled back nearly 30 percent from its July highs, dragged down by worries about the writers and actor strikes. Although the former's now over. Uh, worse, last month, the CFO made some comments at an industry conference talking about how it wouldn't be prudent for Netflix to keep growing its margins as fast as it's done over the past couple of years. Thanks for nothing. I mean, the bears, they saw that and assumed the worst, and they sold the stock aggressively. Sell, 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 but when we finally saw the numbers last Wednesday, Netflix delivered inline sales with very strong profit margins that translated into $3.73 of earnings per share. Wall Street was looking for $3.49. But most importantly, management raised their full-year operating margin guidance and gave terrific forecasts for 2024. We don't have a lot of companies that are giving great forecasts. Turns out all those margin worries, meaningless. Meanwhile, Netflix is generating cash flow like crazy. The biggest positive surprise for the quarter, though, was on subscriber growth. All right. This was a tremendous front for this. Netflix had 8.76 million global streaming paid net subscriber additions. That's astounding. It travels the 6.06 million number that the analysts and the company's pretty much expecting. Even the whisper of what the most bullish hedge funds wanted to see was only 7 to 8 million. In fact, this was Netflix's third straight quarter of accelerating subscriber growth. And Madrid said the current quarter should be similar to the last one. Wow! Many of these new subs came from Netflix's new ad-supported plans where membership was up 70% just versus the previous quarter. There have been concerns that the new advertising operation wasn't ramping quickly enough, and Netflix has already said that the advertisers will come once they build a large enough user base. And isn't that what they're really doing? Some of the better-than-expected subscriber growth also came from the company's crackdown on password sharing, which they're now doing worldwide. Turns out people aren't canceling the subscriptions in large numbers. Instead, people who borrowed accounts are paying up for their own access. While you could call this a one-time boost, which the media really did, it's a one-time boost that's working out much better than anybody expected. Password sharing was really rife. It's kind of like a little like legal shoplifting, which also seems to have become the norm these days. Unfortunately, it's much harder for retailers to crack down on theft 
than Netflix. What else? Netflix also announced new price increases for some of its plans in the U.S., U.K., and France. Combination of the crackdown on account sharing, selective price increases, and the coming ramp up in the ad business are what will keep helping the company grow its average revenue per user. I thought they did a great job explaining the whole story. By the way, this conference call was probably maybe my favorite so far of the earnings season. It was just pure joy. Overall, there was very little quibble here. Netflix is terrific subscriber numbers, a compelling plan. It's making big strides to grow profitability. What's not to like? No wonder people want the stock hand over fist. And look, while I hate to chase stocks that have run, Geo Netflix is still down substantially from its July highs. And the darn thing trades at 25 times next year's earnings estimate, which is not at all expensive given the growth rate. And by the way, the advertising growth rate, I think, is going to be stellar. Now, that's how the stock could soar during such an ugly week. What about Tesla? Oh, it's a great company with a stock that nevertheless got crushed last week. Now, in fairness, Tesla shares have spent the whole third quarter trending lower thanks to production worries. When they reported in July, they made it clear that third quarter production would be down a little bit as they upgraded their factories. When Tesla ultimately posted its third quarter production delivery numbers three weeks ago, both figures were down meaningfully from the second quarter, with deliveries coming in well below what Wall Street was looking for. Still, if you were a Tesla bull, you could dismiss one quarter of soft production results by focusing on the core thesis. Demand for Teslas was still very high. And these guys were making far more money on electric vehicles than anybody else in the industry. Unfortunately, when Tesla reported last week, that whole thesis was called into question. In part by the numbers, but I think in many ways, we got to spend some time on this because it really kind of took my breath away. In part because of negative commentary by the man himself, Elon Musk. The quarter was just plain weaker than expected. Tesla's first top and bottom line miss since 2019. Free cash flow also came up short by more than $1 billion. Four straight free cash flow missed. Meanwhile, the company needed to cut prices just to stay competitive. An increasingly promotional environment for EVs. I thought everybody wanted them. Tesla's automotive gross margins fell from 18.1% in the previous quarter to just 16.3% this time when the analysts were looking for 17.6%. And boy, this thing has really come down over the last couple of quarters. Let me give you in plain English. The results suggest that Tesla increasingly needs to compromise on price in order to sell enough cars. While management did reiterate the four-year production guidance, 1.8 million vehicles. Now, you got to wonder how much they'll have to cut prices in order to move all that inventory. They even talk about advertising. This was not, not, not the Tesla of the last few years. And man, if you were looking for comfort from Tesla's genius CEO himself, you sure didn't get much of it on the conference call. Instead, Musk gave you a downbeat outlook, not just on the car, but on the vehicle, but on the global economy and the impact of higher interest rates on the business. Man, I I, I was talking to like one of these Wall Street bears or something. At the end of the day, while Tesla may one day be a technology company, for now it mostly sells cars, and it's tough to sell cars in a higher interest rate environment, especially when the global love affair with electronic vehicles, I think, may have reached its apex, short of being legislated back into pole position, which certainly could happen. Musk's cautious comments seem to make the analysts particularly uneasy, if not queasy. Bank of America was surprised that the company spent so much time talking about the big picture. While Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas, a personal favorite and a high-profile bull on Tesla, said it was one of the most cautious conference calls he'd seen from companies from the company in years. I'm telling you, it just felt awful. Now, there was plenty of other stuff going on here. Tesla's AI investments, which have gotten much more love in a better quarter. Negative update on the Cybertruck, really negative. But really, everything else was a sideshow after these disappointing numbers and Musk's grim outlook for the global economy. His own commentary is worth, I don't know, like 10 points down. Not long ago, Tesla seemed unassailable, but now the bull thesis is under fire and the latest quarter didn't help. Bottom line, I know we tend to think that these mega cap adjacent stocks should trade together, but they're not. 
They shouldn't. They're not they're a totally different business. Netflix roared last week because it's a thriving media company. Boy, that's hard to find, huh? Well, Tesla's in the auto industry, and it's tough to be an automaker when the yield in the 10 years within spitting distance of the 5% level. And that's how non-magnificent Netflix can outperform the magnificent Tesla. I don't want to count Tesla out, but I need Elon Musk to be more positive. I'm going to pound the table on the stock of this great company. I want to take calls. I want to go to Carol in Massachusetts. Carol. Hi, Jim. Booyah. I Booyah, enjoy Carol. your show. Thank you. Enjoy your show very much. And uh, I know you're positive on NVIDIA, but I was wondering it went, it went up as high as 500 and then down to 412. And I'm wondering with the new one announcement today about the, uh, the ARM PC chips, what your feelings are and should I buy some more? Okay, I, no, I don't think so. Let me tell you why. Because that on PC chip, it, it is not going to mean that much. The margins aren't as good. Uh, Cadence, which is a partner, a, a colleague of them, reported an outlook that wasn't that good tonight that could probably send NVIDIA stock down. It's a long-term thesis. I don't want to pound the table on that one either until it goes below 400, which is always a possibility. The moves in Netflix and Tesla are a reminder that not all mega cap stocks trade together. It's why the non-magnificent Netflix could outperform the magnificent Tesla and why you need to pay attention to the actual industries, not just the stocks and, of course, not just the actual index. All right, much more Mad Money, including my Susan with Snap-on, down nearly 15% from 52 week higher. Investors getting a buying opportunity in the company after it turned in some, a very strong report in an ugly tape last week. I got exclusive with CEO. Then Hess got a bid from Chevron, a $53 billion deal, creating a more consolidated industry. But... Where do I come down on the deal? I'll give you my take and all your calls, of course, rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. For all the hand-wringing about the direction of the economy, we've got some terrific numbers from companies that are often considered pretty cyclical. Last week, for instance, there was an upside surprise from an old favorite of mine, Snap-on, the Wisconsin-based maker of tools and diagnostic equipment for the auto repair business, but also along with agriculture, aviation, construction, and the military. The toolmaker turned in a clean top and bottom line beat last Thursday morning, including a $0.07 bottom line beat off a $4.44 basis. I don't know. Snap-on stock didn't get much of a lift last Thursday and Friday. Remember, we had a real bad market, so anything could have happened. The stock's still down more than 15% from its July highs. Doesn't make sense to me. So does Tepper's response to a strong quarter make us want to buy? Oh, let's check him with an old favorite. Let's check him with Dick Pinchuk. He's the chairman and CEO of Snap-on to get a better read on the situation. Mr. Pinchuk, welcome back to Mad Money. After hey, way too good to long. See you. How you been? Uh, I'm real good. How about you? Oh, great. You're looking great. well. Thank you. So are you. All right. Uh, one of the things I love about you and your company is you call it like you see it. And right now you said you've never been more prosperous. Explain that to me, giving it back the, to so many people are down. The beat. business has never been more prosperous. I can tell you, you can look at the numbers, but you, when you talk to them, we just had a, uh, a Snap-on Franchisee Conference. 9,000 people went there and boom, shakalaka was, the, was the, the word of the day. Everybody was optimistic. Last weekend, I spent uh, a weekend, a day with uh, about 
two dozen franchisees, and they couldn't have been more excited about where they are and more confident about their future. You know, when when you listen to New York or Washington, it's like so many modern-day Paul Revere's. The recession is coming. The recession is coming. The recession is coming. But if you're in a garage or you're in a factory, you don't hear any of that. Well, okay, let's talk about the garage. Okay. Uh, I know it's a combination of new products, but also, of course, the great toolkits. Right. But what I thought was really driving things that you made and drove home, we look backwards. Remember this industry in the 90s where the number of trouble codes, electronic trouble codes on a car, were measured in dozens. Now they're measured in tens of thousands. You can't use old tools to fix these that's, cars. That's right. But there's a couple of things. One thing I want to tell you is the average car is 12 and a half years old. So the old cars are still on the road, so they're right. still using our older tools. Tools. But there's always a bunch of new ones. That's why we say, we say, we think we're on the, the threshold of the golden age of auto repair. First of all, what's happening is cars are getting more fly-by-wire. So you need more trouble codes, you need more diagnostics, you need more database to analyze them. But then you have autonomy coming in. People are putting autonomous devices and they need more precision. We're investing in precision devices like torque wrenches. And then you have the new powertrains like electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids and advanced uh, you know, uh, internal combustion engines. Right. And so that creates a huge stream of tools. And this is the place where we play because we're in the garages. We can see exactly what that new technology requires in terms of repair. You don't see it till they're on the road and we bring out new tools to fix it. Now, you've also got a thriving, from even since the time I saw you last, business in military. But, I mean, some, uh, you've got, uh, this was one that I thought was about agriculture, I thought was amazing. And it, it, there's an incredible amount of what I regard as, like, oddity, wind towers. Wind How did you get into wind, wind towers? towers? Well, because you need mechanics. To, the wind towers got a lot of mechanics on it. But you that when I saw you last year, you wind towers wasn't I know, big business. but it's new. Wind towers are starting to go up. They're starting to expand. You know, one of the things that's interesting about this is that business, we've decided that we've started to build kits that will fix wind towers. So you take a box that we make already, put like 200 tools in it and ship it out there, it fixes everything on the wind tower. Do the same thing on the flight lines for airplanes and so on, military, the same kind of thing. And one of the things about this, Jim, I think is true, is the makers and fixers, the people who work on those lines and do the physical tasks, sometimes people discount them. Right. They think they're gonna disappear. But I'm gonna tell you again, they made this country great, they kept us here in World War II, and we're just in a war again, in the COVID, where the weapons weren't tanks and planes, they were sheltering and masking and vaccinating. And the people of work, the makers and fixers, stood their posts through that whole time. Our factories kept working, kept our society from disintegrating while we engaged the COVID. They emphasized and demonstrated the essential nature of their tasks. We were all witnesses. They're not going anywhere. And so a lot of people look at that as the business of the past. It's the business not of the future. The future. And also, Nick, there, there, there was a period where people didn't understand your work and didn't understand you. And I'm proud to say that I did both thought that what you were really doing was having people borrow a lot of money and they were going belly up like some sort of mid-level market scheme. You now put the delinquencies, they're the lowest I've ever seen. Right. The delinquencies are great. You know why this is? It's because we have this model. It fell from Saturn. I wish I, in, I wish I had invented it myself. You know, it's the van model right. where the van drivers go into the garages and they have weekly routes where they keep calling on the guys who twirl the wrenches, the technicians, so they know who they
they are. So sometimes a guy wants to buy a big box and he needs financing for us. So our franchisee calls in the airstrikes. This guy's worth it. This guy we shouldn't bet on. We do that. And then the, fran the franchisee is there every week to collect. And that's why the delinquencies are so low. Snap on takes those those mechanics and everyday people and make them perform like plus, plus, plus prime customers. Well, I've got to tell you, this was the strongest that I've seen. I like that. But I will point out that you said of the, that the businesses that are re the business that's really booming, that you said market is booming gangbusters, is this military and aviation business. Now, is that because, unfortunately, we do have so many things going on well, overseas? Well, no, the aviation, you know. I don't know. You never know. But the aviation business is up big. Part of it is because the market is good. But part of it is because we're just getting in it. You know, we just That's expanded right. capacity. Look, we, right. We're just coming in. We just we just put our capacity online there. And I tell you what, Jim, we're we have such confidence in the future. We beside that that expansion, we are expanding the capacity for our four largest factories in America right wow. now. This is what's going to make next year even better than this I year. I believe yet. that. And I've been right about you, and you've been right about your company. That's Nick Finchick, chairman CEO of Snap-on, an American hero. That money's back after the break. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. It is time. Time for the lightning round. Best round. Cold Thorn. This is Talk Standard. Bye, bye, bye. So click over to the planet sound. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Crimson Miami. Let's start with top Mark in Illinois. Mark. Hey, Jim. Buya and Salou. I like that. My question is about this for stock. So I am an investor. Like the car. Sell the stock. Sell, sell, what sell. can I say? Let's go to Rebecca in New York. Rebecca. Hi, Mr. Kramer. How are you? How are I you? am doing well. How are you doing? Good. Thanks so much for asking. So, sure. I bought uh, the uh, automation stock ongoing. You're talking about it. And I'm just yeah. wondering, do you think now I should sell some of the profits? No, no, it sells at five times earnings. I mean, something is wrong. Obviously, people are very worried about, about credit now and cars. But, boy, I'm not going to tell you to sell a stock sales at five times earnings, even though I think that means it's not going to make the estimates. John in New York. John. How you doing? Booyah. I'm doing well. How you doing? All right. I'm hanging in there. Good. My, my question today is about PBR, Petroleum. I cannot believe that stock is, you know what, I used to joke that it was not as good as Pat Blue Ribbon, but it is a lot better. And that's one of the reasons why I frankly like uh, Modelo and Corona. But I will say that this stock has run too much for me, even though it sells at six times earnings. I'm a seller of PBR. Let's go to Joan in New York. Joan. Yes. Hi, Jim. How hey, are Joan. you? Hey, Joan. I'm doing How are you? for having me on. Of course. Okay. And I'm calling about NU Holdings. All right, this is another this is another stock from Latin America that I think I, I would sell. It's moved up so much. Now, look, if they hadn't moved up so much, I'd be a little less cautious. But in this lousy market, why am I going to push that kind of stock? Let's go to Clark in Florida. Clark. Booyah, Jim. Let's Booyah, Clark. Clark Adams in beautiful Florida. Got uh, a question for you. Yeah, sure. Uh, a few, few years ago, uh, I've been watching for a long time, uh, you had a review of Iridium Communications. I like the technology. I really like the niche market strategy they have. So I picked up some shares just under $10. Okay. So it's grown over the years. It got up to 50 
and I was quite happy, but in recent months, it's it's gone down to about in the 30s. Should I yeah, draw some well, you know, it's, it was supposed to be making money and, and now expects to lose money. And we're not going to recommend stocks that are losing money or mad money because, boy, it's tough enough being in the ones that are making a ton of money, frankly. I need to go to David in my home state of Pennsylvania. David. Jim, in the past, you recently pounded the tape, routinely pounded the table for this pharma company. But recently, you've been relatively quiet. The stock has an attractive yield at 4%, a reasonable P.E. of 15, and is 30% off of its 52-week high. It just announced the acquisition of Marathi Therapeutics. Are you ready to pound the table again for Krista No, I'm not, frankly, and I'll tell you why. Because I'm not saying it lost its way. I'm saying I don't like the big pharma stocks, and they do not have the pipeline that they once had. I'm not going to push Bristol-Myers. Never buy a drug stock just for the yield. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Coming up, news from the oil patch gave Kramer deja vu. Can a possible merger mean gushing profits for Chevron? Stick around. My first stock buy 40 years ago was just a total bust. Ten shares of American agronomics for 10 smackers each. Stock went to one almost the next day when a surprise frost at the company's only real asset, Orange Groves, down in Florida. After that near wipeout, you might ask, why would I ever buy a stock again? Legitimate question. The answer? Well, I bought a stock in a stock at a legendary oil company. It's called Natomas. And soon after, it got an astounding bid from fellow oil traveler Diamond Shamrock. Sure, there were some pluses and minuses in between, but the fact is I caught a takeover bid. Yes! And it was the first of many, mostly in the oil patch. Boom, boom, boom. One after another after another. I knew those deals would happen because I happened to be covering M&A for the American Lawyer magazine at the time, and it was obvious, plain as the nose of my face, that oil companies were just merging left and right. You could throw a dart at the group and hit a winner, culminating in the biggest percentage win of my life, a giant call option position in Gulf Oil when it got bought by Standard Oil California, now known as Chevron. Paid for law school with that one. So today when I saw Hess get a bit from Chevron, I got deja vu. The oil patch is rife with takeovers again. Hess getting a $53 billion oil stock bid from Chevron on the heels of ExxonMobil offering nearly $60 billion for the charitable trust holding that was Pioneer Natural Resources BXD. These are colossal deals, people, not unlike those energy takeovers from the early 80s, where the majors all realized it was cheaper to drill for oil on Wall Street than in the ground. Periodically, that happens. They see immense bargains in the stock market, and then they just pounce. Mike Worth, the CEO of Chevron, told me today that the oil industry's relatively newfound discipline, they're preserving capital rather than blowing it on endless drilling, could really created some great opportunities for the majors to pick up some other companies like Hess. Worth can use Chevron's giant budget to make deals that are additive to earnings almost immediately. In other words, it's a great time to own oil companies and to buy their stocks. I ought to know. We had a big position in Pioneer for the Chapel Trust. Oh, it was terrific in this bad market. It seemed way too cheap, just like in the early 1980s. It made too much sense as a takeover target and a merger after group to sell. It's the industry's unwillingness to drill that makes the independence so irresistible. Although it, it certainly doesn't hurt that electric vehicles now seem a lot less inevitable than they did just six months ago. 
Wall Street's slow to recognize this new trend, though. It seems stuck in the world where oil has an expiration date because of ESG concerns and electric vehicle sales. The oil companies no longer believe that short termination theory, though. There's still one more reason to stay invested in these stocks. Now, because of the last two mergers, the oil stocks have increased in value, naturally aided by troubles in the Middle East pushing up the price of crude. Although the stocks did get they got clobbered today when oil dropped a couple of bucks. Still, I'd argue there's always a bull market somewhere. And right now, it's in the oil and gas cohort. My favorite is Cotera, C-T-R-A. Now, we've had CEO Tom Jordan on the show several times. Cotera is still by far the cheapest. And if you catch a couple of cold days, oh, this natural gas-focused producer is going to roar. I think the stock's worth far more than what it's currently selling for. We bought aggressively for the trust, just slightly lower from here. Club members know that we just can't get enough. Hey, by the way, I could say the same thing about Conoco, although it's more likely to be acquired to acquire than be a target, which is why we've avoided so far for the trust, where you can see all our moves before we make them by investing, by joining the investing club. It's pretty darn simple. I can tell you we buy much more of uh, be much by much more Diamondback and EOG. Those are two favorites right now on a pullback. I'd love to pick some up. Uh, and you have my blessing buy them right here. And by the way, Marathon Oil. Man, wish me on that one for the trust, too. Again, my conviction comes from 40 years ago. 40 years when the oils were like bluefish swimming in an easy school just to throw a line. I wish we had a broader bull market, but the fact is that there's really the only bull market in town right now is in the oil patch. And it is decidedly positive in a decidedly negative market. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Mad Money Disclaimer.